tonight on Arena. Colm Keegan and Callie Ryan on transforming their hit stage show into an audio experience and new albums from Alicia Keys, Tom Morello and Aeon Station up for review. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. It's now 10 years since the influential spoken word play Three Men Talking About Things They Kind of Know About premiered at the Dublin Fringe Festival before touring Ireland and selling out shows in London and Paris. Writers Colm Keegan, Stephen Jim Smith and Kelly Ryan marked the anniversary, launched a newly recorded radio play at the Axis Ballymun this week and a, specially, a special limited 10th anniversary publication of the play is now available Colm Keegan and Kelly Ryan are with me in studio now and there hasn't been a big falling out between the three of you. <laughs> no, we should point out straight away that it have been three men talking about the row they had. Um, yeah, yeah. Stephen just couldn't, Stephen James couldn't be here this evening. He's here. actually, he's, he's performing tonight yeah. and he lives down in Wexford now so he's, he's busy down there. We accepted that as an excuse. Well, so did we. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember, Colm, uh, seeing this play 10 years ago in the International and I remember the, the punch that it packed um, just put it in context of what you were doing with the play back then and the stories that you were telling. Yeah, well, it was kind of at the start of like what was a burgeoning and sort of spoken word scene that we was only coming into form and didn't really know what it was at the time. And myself, Callan, Stephen met and decided, Stephen said, we should try and do something for the fringe. So we burst into this kind of theatre thing. We, what we were doing was just poems and then interlocking mm. them together to make up a spoken word show. Um, and all of it was something that we were trying to define and explain and understand for ourselves at the time. And we ran it um, for six nights in the International Bar. And we brought, we brought in a director called Sarah Brennan, who's a brilliant director, and she gave it a whole new theatrical life. Um, and so, you know, it started off as text, as poems that we performed. And we thought it was great just to stand in front of a microphone yeah. and say poems. We were like, isn't this great, Sarah? And Sarah mm. was like, have you thought about moving around? So, But it became this mad theatrical experience. And then after that, it went down so well. It was nominated for an award. Um, and then the year after the project where with friends were running a, a series of bringing back shows that they thought could have been better celebrated and highlighted mm. and more attention for them. So we were in at that and then we linked in with Jen Coppner who's a theatre producer and we, we toured it around Ireland. We went to Bristol and uh, London yeah. and Paris. So yeah. it was just this, uh, had this mad life but it started off as text so it's mad to be back there again 10 yeah, years later yeah, with this is, book. It is interesting because that's what you, cause you you brought in a copy of the book for me uh, this evening as well and ble- beautiful publication it is. But Kelly, part part of what and, I, and when I listened because there is an audio mm. version as well we'll hear some of the audio as we're talking this evening. When I listened back to it today, I realised why I got such a punch in the stomach yeah. uh, 10 years ago. Because essentially what yourself, Colm and Stephen James Smith do, you tell your own stories. Deeply personal and, stories. Yeah, really personal yeah, stuff. Yeah, and, and I think that was kind of the, the the fundamentals of it was we wanted to be honest. We wanted to be true to what we uh, were experiencing at the time. I was a new father at the time. My father just passed away. Colm and Stephen then, as we wrote and sort of set the bar for each other and realised we have to be brutally truthful, but in a lyrical way because poetry can take away some of that edge for people. And it ended up being probably some of the more honest pieces we've ever written and 
there's sort of resonances, I think, for everyone out there. There's life, there's death, there's love, there's relationships. And then the theme of fatherhood kind of echoed through all of our work. So there was a lot of interlocking stuff there. And that's why the piece on the page and on the stage is this interwoven thing where yeah. all of our stories are different. But really, we they're human truths. Yeah, in, in some ways, what we get is uh, from each of you, this is simplifying it hugely. Yeah, yeah we get kind of a story from childhood, if you like, yeah. a story of first love and a story of what happened happens to relationships yeah, after they yeah, start yeah, exactly. yeah. kind of but and but it's it's they link in and out they of each do. other in a way that makes the three stories almost become a bigger story it's kind of a story of some uh, of, yeah. uh, of all of us of three men talking three men talking about things they kind of know about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let's listen to um this is quite an early uh, input from you column that we're that we're getting you, you've told us in an earlier sequence about your childhood growing up in Ballymun and all of those type of things so this is your you're into your teen years now yeah. and this is the sequence we get from you and this is from the audio production when I was 17 I fell in love with the dark-haired, blue-eyed girl of my dreams. Right on the cusp of the second summer of love, back when the rave scene was still innocent and carefree, all peace and love and unity, and during the biggest rave Dublin had ever seen, we kissed in the strobes and the laser beams. We became inseparable then. It had an inevitability to it. We went everywhere together. Couldn't travel on a bus without wrapping around each other first. Shared everything. Headphones joints, ice creams, cigarette butts. We used to draw our pictures of a little raver flying up to the stars. A mutual friend, he had a tattooed in his arm. Petsy's proud of that now. I wrote our poems even. Show me any mountain to climb for you, I said. Show me any sea to swim. For you have ignited a fire in my heart which no one can ever dim. I meant it. Once we got the dart out to Bray Seafront, I can remember her freaking out and laughing because I fucked her into the sea. Stupid, boyish thing to do, but funny. That evening we kissed in the shadows of the promenade, my hands on her hips, salt in our lips, she whispered Colum's little pecks as I kissed her cheeks with the tide coming in round her feet. And connecting her all, those ritual phone calls, that tug in the gut from the dreaded engaged tone or the flutter in my throat, a whore evocative hello. Spending hours talking, not caring what's being said, just loving the play and our voices saying, you hang up, now you hang up instead. And at the end of one July, my family went away for the week. We sneaked her out to the house. We shared our bodies like secrets. Two years we were like that, free to enjoy each other's company until the news nobody is ready for. A pregnancy. And nine months later, into delivery ward, she handed me my daughter. I shaded just open blue eyes from those fluorescent lights and I promised I'd never live. It's, it's just extraordinary even listening to it again and we were talking about um, aspects of it there as we were, as we were listening to that too. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, this, it's the rawness of, the honesty of the stories that you're telling, uh, Colm, that, that really came back to me when I listened to it today of that experience yeah. of 10 years ago. How difficult was it, you know, then and now to, because you had to go back in and mm. revisit those stories. Yeah. You know, we, we, we hear the, the difficulty that you experienced there with, the, you know, an initial teenage pregnancy. Then there's the joy of that, yeah. of that birth and it's, it's all there. And we, we see how that relationship develops. How difficult was it to revisit all of that 10 years on? That was actually a really 
that was a tough part of it, I think, in some ways to accept that we'd moved on and our lives have changed so much. And some of the people that we're talking about aren't in our lives anymore. Mm. And um, even I remember Stephen was saying that there were some things that he would have kind of uh, pulled back a little bit on too, you know. Um, I think one of the great things about the book is that whoever opens that book now, the person that's talking there still talks. It's like Socrates talking or Sappho talking. It's like... That person, yeah. that the person who wrote that, it's like the the mosquito caught number. It's there eternally. But when we we can't perform that play anymore, because like I'm a beer bellied forty six year old man. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm not that kind of fella like with no grey hair who stomped mm. around on stage and didn't. He's gone. Yeah. Well, he lives on in there, which is kind of mad. And yeah, profound. and you were also saying, Colin, that for you, uh, the, Stephen was very keen on the audio side of things. He yeah. wanted that to happen. Yeah. You were very keen on the book being published. Yeah, because and it's again, it's like my own personal bugbear is structure, you know, like and I mm. like to kind of how a poem looks on the page and its relationship, the relationship with the line break. You know, Simon Armand had always said spoken word is is flawed because of its lack of it doesn't yeah. bother with line breaks and I remember Sarah Brennan saying to me why do you stop there and I was like because that's where I hit enter on the page you know and the <laughs> next line starts what, what about for you Kelly was there what, which, yeah. which, was there a particular aspect that was more important than I, the other I, it's funny because you know with three you can always have a deciding vote you know there's you don't have to have a, a singular point of view yeah, the I, Tony Gregory of I, three men yeah. talking <laughs> I think the book is certainly a huge one for me because I think the written word is, is like in the beginning it was the word as they mm. say and I think that's a huge part for me but I think then there's a complementary factor here with the with the audio because of the music that elevates it and that experience Who is the music by the way? His name is Gareth Quinn Redmond he's an ambient musician an Irish musician superb and as you can hear from the, the recording I mean just spectacular sort of elevation of the words which never really existed in the original performance so from that perspective we've got like Colm said with the book and that you've got your document of a time mm. but you've also got something else to bring another level to and it And again you, you here were, were revisiting the, the death of your mother she yeah, the death of my mother and my father and, and that, those are tough things to revisit but because we'd gone through it one time there's something about it being a piece of art now and you can kind of return to return it and look at it in that way. way. Let's have a listen to a, a part of your section here because they, they, they are self-contained units but we listen sure. to about half of this one I think. Great. A few days after my parents' 20th wedding anniversary just a few hours after my mum died my dad decided we can't be alone tonight. And so we pulled our mattresses out onto the living room floor and we tried to sleep there in the big room by the big door. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night and this image is burned into my mind like a hot knife. My dad in the darkness, sitting on the wicker chair, rocking back and forth. Keenan saying, My wife. My wife. I realised that this loss was more than just a mother or a wife. It was a life. And that was gone now. An instant milestone to mark this time from that. I was a man. I was a child. I had gone in one quick instant from a child being cared for by a parent to a child caring for a parent. And when someone you love is sick, when you are in the thick of that, you're not thinking... You're just living. And you're never not tired. You're living off a hot tea and showers because sickness is this narrow space and their pain is always etched deep on your face. And afterwards, your memories are buckled. After they're gone, all you can remember is the sickness, how they looked and the state they were in. And I remember thinking, I do not 
want to remember my mother like this, not sick and gaunt, a bag of creaking knuckles and jaundiced skin. I want to remember her when we were giggling together, baking Swedish gingerbread men to hang on the Christmas tree. Baking Swedish gingerbread to hang yeah. on the Christmas tree. I presume that memory is still as oh bright Oh my God, today. and in fact, I was just thinking about I must get my skates on and, and bake some for Christmas now. We're not too far away. Yeah, and that's it. Kelly Ryan there in one of his sections from the, the book and the audio piece that we're talking about this evening. Three men talking about things they kind of know about. Um, so the audio, Kelly, from you, yeah. we can hear that people can hear the audio in its entirety. It's about 35 minutes. A lovely yeah. listen. It's a, yeah. it's a touching listen. It's Where up, can we get it? It's up there on Spotify already. So... Uh, seek it out it's it's a it's a beautiful piece and we're very very proud of it and the book uh, column it, it has there you're telling me there are some extras in here as well yeah we've got a four we've got four we all wrote forwards and contextualize it and reflect them back in it and then we've got um, a piece from Gemma Tipton who brought the play down to Kinsale years ago and the director mm. um, Sarah Brennan wrote a lovely piece for it as well and there's some archival photos in there as well which is quite nice any chance that we get three men talking about things they found out since they were talking about things they kind of knew about? Yeah, well, there's a little bit in the forwards, but yeah, it's kind of mad for us to, we haven't spent so much, as much time together working together and collaborating the way we have and remembering right. like why we did it in the first place been really nice, you know? Yeah, so, you, know, you never know. Maybe. 40-year-olds have something to say too. They sure do, Sean. plus year They sure do. Right, okay. <laughs> Listen, thanks to both of you com- for, thanks, for coming in thanks. and do check out the audio on Spotify. Colm Keegan and Kelly Ryan there and a limited edition publication of the play with new forwards, essays and photos of your younger selves. Oh, yes. <laughs> Available in Books Upstairs, both in person and online. You can find out full details on booksupstairs.com. The Magnificent Seven, A Fistful of Dollars, Godzilla and the Ring, just a few of the Hollywood classics and blockbusters which are in fact remakes of Japanese originals and that's before we get into the endless list of films that were hugely influenced by Japan, Star Wars, The Matrix, Blade Runner, The Lion King, the list goes on and on. So clearly the global artistic impact of Japanese cinema is part of the reason for the upcoming Irish Film Institute Japanese story season. John Maguire has been taking a closer look at the films selected by the IFI and he just joins me now to talk about them. Um, Before we get into the films themselves, John, how important is, first of all, the cinema industry in Japan and how influential is it internationally? Oh, massively influential, Sean, and has been since the 1950s. Uh, When Tokyo Story, which is one of the films in the IFI uh, Japanese Story, Volume 3, these are all in cinema only screenings and if you are interested remember that the IFI like all cinemas is operating at 50% capacity so get in and get your tickets but in the 1950s when Tokyo Story was released audiences here in the west were just starting to get access to Japanese cinema Kurosawa had made his breakthrough with Rashomon a couple of years before Kenji Mitsuguchi's films were popular on the festival circuit but Otsu remained completely unknown abroad, Yasujiro Otsu, chiefly because international distributors thought his brand of quiet and delicate cinema was too Japanese to be exported. And what, and does, what does he show we, us then in Tokyo Story, which would be screened on Saturday at half past three? Well, this is really, um, it was the film that broke the barrier for Otsu, but it took actually took 20 years for it that barrier to break. And he was dead by the time it happened. An alcoholic, he died in 1963. He was only 60, shortly after the release of his last film, An Autumn Afternoon. But anyway, in 1972, Tokyo Story was screened in New York. 
to coincide with the publication of Paul Schrader's book, Transcendental Style in Film, which was hugely influential in an analysis of Japanese cinema up to that point. And like you say, uh, mm. Blade Runner, Star Wars, all of those films, all of those filmmakers would have read this book and seen what it was about. The critics raved about Tokyo Story and it, the story of the film really went from there. And it's a masterpiece, really. And to see it on the big screen is a treat. Yeah. Otsu called it his most melodramatic picture, but it's the perfect introduction to his style. It contains in miniature all of his qualities. It's an everyday story of everyday people, everyday lives, simply told, beautifully acted, unpretentious, but deeply sophisticated. And that's Saturday, as I said. Half past three is the screening of Tokyo Story. Um, two films from Kurosawa, part of the programme. And th- these are pretty well-known films, but I suppose if you've never seen them on the big screen, this is the chance to do so, John. That's right. Throne of Blood uh, screens on Sunday at, uh, at half past three. And this is Kurosawa's interpretation of Macbeth, which transports the Scottish play to feudal Japan mm. by way of the no-theatre tradition. And it follows the samurai commander... Uh, played by Toshiro Mifune, who was Kurosawa's great actor. And it's it's such a treat to see his face, you know, 40 feet high on the big screen. And he's haunted by these ghostly visions and prophecies and prognoscations and the ambitions of his manipulative wife. Uh, Kurosawa is a masterful filmmaker. He's much talked about. Um, and, and this film is much more than just another Shakespeare, but it's a synthesis of the two cultures. Yeah the East and the West, and it creates this vivid, visceral, integrated aesthetic from remarkably little fog and wind, trees and sound. And Mifune, who's like a wild animal in the film, and I haven't seen yet Joel Cohen's new Macbeth, The Tragedy of Macbeth, which we'll see maybe early in the new year. I've only seen the trailer, but you could, like you say, we're saying about influences, I certainly felt yeah. uh, echoes of Throne of Blood in what I've seen of it so far. And is your Jimbo a, a, a totally different kettle of fish or are you in a very similar uh, aesthetic? Yojimbo, I think, is more of a, a Kurosawa making a movie f- to make some money, if you know what I mean. <laughs> this is the Japanese. They have a rich genre of, ja- of samurai cinema. They call it Chanbara. And Yojimbo is still, even 40, 50 years later, the exemplar of that form. But the curious thing about it is that Kurosawa really set out to make a Western. He was inspired by his adoration of John Ford. This is a great story. You've heard it. You've seen it. You've seen it in A Fistful of Dollars. You've seen it in Last Man's standing yeah. uh, the ronin the samurai with no loyalty turns up in the middle of a war between two equally savage clans and he tries to turn everything to his advantage it's a wonderful film and he actually made a sequel of it it was that popular called sanjuro which also stars mifune playing more or less the same kind of character but again to see yojimbo on the big screen this film that you've heard so much about if you've never seen it it's so entertaining. I mean, yeah. it, it, he literally is setting out just to keep you on the edge of your seat the whole way through. So is it, it looks is it as is it as bums on seat as Kurosawa goes? Is that what we're getting in your Jimbo? That's what he's trying to do. I think what he was, he was always had one eye on the box office. Right. He was very much a, a modern filmmaker in the sense that he wanted to make some money out of it. Now, he never really did, but uh, yeah. a film like Yojimbo just traveled the world in 1961. Everybody saw it. 10 past and, six. Uh, 10 it, past it's six, just, it's screening on Thursday, the, the 16th. 10 past six on Thursday, that's yeah. right, Sean. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about Kon Ichikawa and his film, An Actor's Revenge, which Kon is showing Ichikawa. on Saturday. Sorry, go ahead. That's right. He... Uh, Ichikawa made about something like 60 films in 70 years. He only died in 2006. And this this film, An Actor's Revenge, was made in 1963. 
and he had already won the jury prize at Cannes for a previous film and was relatively well known to international audiences. But this is a very strange and very stylish film. It's a kind of an intricate tale of betrayal and retribution set in the 19th century Kabuki theatre. So it's a blend of cinema and film theatre that takes in melodrama and comedy and martial arts and there's elements of the psychological thriller elements of the period drama, the jidegeki, as the Japanese call it, a period drama. And he mixes all of these conventions of those kind of story forms and then turns them on their head in the story of a, uh, a, a character who is uh, like Shakespeare in Love, like Gwyneth Paltrow in Shakespeare mm. in Love. It's a male performer of female roles. Ah. Uh, and he gives this character a, a position to observe everything that's going around him from the pickpockets in the stalls to the wealthy merchants in the balcony. And he's got this story of revenge against three wealthy merchants who he believes orphaned him uh, when he caused his family to go uh, bankrupt years before. It's really very exciting for 1963 and it's still very startling, the special effects, the complex camera work, the way that uh, he composes the film is still very exciting. That's um, Con Ichikawa and an actress revenge Sunday the 18th at half past three as part of the IFI's Japanese story season. And finally then, a gender identity at the heart of this one as well, Toshio Matsumoto's Funeral Parade of Roses, John. That's right. This is a really startling film. Even still, now it's 40 years old, released in 1969 and a touchstone film of the Japanese new wave and the emerging avant-garde that were loosening up Japanese society at that time. And the film really is a kind of a trip, loosely adapted from Oedipus Rex, set in the underground gay culture of 1960s Tokyo. It has a transgender actor, Peter, who gives an astonishing performance as Eddie, who's a hostess at a bar where she's competing with her rival, a traditional geisha drag queen, Leda, for the attention of the club owner slash drug dealer, Gonda. That's kind of what's happening Mm. in the plot, but the film doesn't really have a plot as such. Uh, Matsumoto was an experimental filmmaker, so he bends and distorts time, mixes in documentary interviews with gay people in Tokyo at the time. There's lots of film within a film stuff. There's dreams, fantasies, animation, graphic design, alongside your normal sex and drugs and rock and roll and all of that. <laughs> and it's I believe you, you, if you know what I mean, Sean. Yeah, we were talking about the music in Clockwork Orange the other night on the programme, and I believe you would say that you see the influence of Matsumoto uh, in, in Clockwork Orange, and particularly this film, Funeral Parade of Very Roses. Very much so. Not just not mm. just thematically, Sean, but visually and tonally, you can tell that Kubrick would have seen this film, not only because of the violence, but... It's strange and disturbing analysis of a culture that is just emerging and nobody really has the language to express. But it's a one of a kind if it's an open wallow in subversion and transgression and hugely entertaining. I mean, we can watch it now. It's almost a historical document now and we've been uh, outraged multiple times since, but it still has that power to shock. That's great, John. You're You're giving us just four of the chapters there, if you like, of the Japanese story season. But on the basis of that, it sounds interesting for sure. John McGuire talking to us about the Japanese story of films up and running at the Irish Film Institute. And for more information on the films of John has been telling us about and indeed other screens and, ta- and, and times of those screens go to ifi.ie 
Well, of course, it is um, album review time. But before we go to that, uh, Robert Michael Nesmith, the American musician, songwriter, actor, producer and novelist, best known, of course, as a member of the pop rock band, pop and rock band, rather, the, the Monkees, co-star of the TV series, The Monkees. He died, as I heard about his death earlier in the afternoon today. And John Marr and Andrea Cleary, who are with me for album reviews, have been thinking about him and and. and Taking a look at the legacy that we're involved, that that we're talking about there. In terms of Nesmith and the Monkeys, he was the the song. He was the writer of the songs. Essentially, he John. was absolutely. I think he wrote more songs himself than the other three combined. And it was also him that was instrumental in having the band record their own material because, of course, they were a manufactured band in the mid sixties. Um, Bob Rafelson and Bert Schneider, two TV producers who were quite celebrated in Hollywood for many years, Mm. decided they want their sort of American version of the Beatles and let's have an interesting kind of TV show around it. Um, but, But some good material, I have to say. All right, uh, but uh, given that yeah, all things are manufactured, there's artifice in every kind of artistic endeavour. There's artifice in every uh, everything, I suppose, if, if you think about it. That's put out there in that regard. You defend the manufactured band idea, I think, Andrea. I do. I mean, I'm specifically with the monkeys. I do. I I always remember it being kind of maybe it was a little bit uncool to like the monkeys. I mean, mm. ma- making records, you know, mid to late sixties. So you know, the Beatles were starting to make some of their most interesting work, as with Beach Boys and the monkeys. That kind Kind of you know they orbited that space, but they're kind of the naff version of that. But I, I, I think you know they have some absolutely terrific songs, and you know they, I, I think they always wanted to be a rock and roll band, and they've definitely written good. They, they wrote good rock and roll songs. And their legacy will be more than just this kind of, you know, not yeah. manufactured band. I suppose that, it, that is ultimately the problem, John, isn't it? You know, the Beatles were in one side of the Atlantic, the Beach Boys were in the other side of the Atlantic. Yeah. There's not much room for anything in between the two the, of them, is there? No, the, no, there, wa- there wasn't, in, in fairness. I mean, I, I would agree with Andrea. They have some very, very good songs, but they also reinterpreted other yeah. People's songs very, very well. And some of the most famous songs were written by other people. It's important to stress. But how, how important was Nesmith, since it is him that we're, mm. we want to remember today, how important was he to the band? You mentioned the songwriting aspect to it. Was well, he, I think he, he was the most credible and yeah. he was certainly the coolest, mm. you, know, uh, uh, you know. He was the one that wanted to push them into uh, serious... Uh, a serious stature if you like although he did leave in 69 and that precipitated the kind of demise of the band but I think history has been exceptionally kind to them and I was listening to them coming out in the car and I thought yeah there are some great songs here if I was the kind of chin stroking bore that I am today back in the 1960s I probably would have despised them but actually with the benefit of half a century um, yeah, I think they work quite All right. well. Okay, Pleasant Valley Sunday is, is, is not one of the, if his songs, but a song written by Jerry Goffin and Carol King, but the most famous uh, version recorded by the Monkees in 1967, inspired by the street named Pleasant Valley Way and their move to suburban West Orange, New Jersey. Goffin and King wrote the song about dissatisfaction with life in the suburbs. I never thought the Monkees sounded dissatisfied about anything. <laughs> Chocolate burning every 
And that's Pleasant Valley Sunday from the Monkeys and that by way of remembering Mike Nesmith whose death was announced earlier this afternoon. And so to our album reviews then on this Friday evening. Classically trained on the piano from the childhood, Alicia Keys first began composing at the age of 12, signed her first record deal with Columbia Records aged just 15. At this stage she's one of the great icons of American R&B music. Uh, sales of 65 million or something I think I read somewhere today. Her eighth album is out. It's simply called Keys. Tom Morello, idolised by fans worldwide as the innovative and uncompromising guitarist with Rage Against the Machine went on to collaborate with Cypress Hill's B-Rail and Public Enemy's Chuck D in the band Prophets of Rage. His latest album sees him team up with a wide range of collaborators including Idols, San Holo, a little bit of Rodrigo and Gabriella in at the very end of the album for good measure. The album is called The Atlas Underground Flood. And finally, named by one British newspaper as the greatest indie rock record of 2021, Observatory is the latest album from Aeon Station, a band put together by New Jersey bands, uh, based Kevin Whelan from the ashes of the indie darlings, the Wren. Wrens. Let us uh, speak, say hello to Andrea Cleary. Oh no, we did already. they've already spoken, not saying hello to them. Andrea Cleary and John Marr have been listening. Hello anyway. Hello there. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't think you got away with it. Uh, they've been listening to all three albums. Uh, or in the case of Alicia Keys, two albums, almost, we could argue. Her current album is called Keys. Here's a song, uh, here's a song called Is It Insane on the first uh, of the double albums. Slightest touch and I'm no good. in Sin from Keys the new album from Alicia Keys and that's from as I said the first of the the, the, the double albums uh, it's called Originals everything on this side is called Originals or in this part of the album is called mm. Originals explain what's going on Andrea so she's basically she's written an album um, and she's decided on the first side of the album that she will be the one to mix it and produce it or to produce it rather mm. um, on the other side of the album, the same LP, that will be produced by Mike Will made it, or Mike Will, uh, who's worked with Kendrick Lamar and Miley Cyrus and other kind of pop people in the past. And I think that, you know, therein lies the major problem with this uh, record. It doesn't need to have these two kind of identities. I just want to do something then. I'm just going to want to remind you of the beginning of the track we were just listening to. There's a little bit of a piano introduction, so we'll let that that play and wait for her voice to come in. Is it insane? So that is the originals. Now here is the unlocked. Is it Okay, I have to stop it there now. That's um, that's the unlocked version of Is It Insane? There for me, therein lies the problem with the album. The kind of the first version with the piano, I, I was liking it quite nicely. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think what we've just heard there is the sound of self-indulgence. Mm. I mean, it's one hour, 34 minutes of self-indulgence. There is some very good 
music on this and her voice is stunning oh, but and, and, and her and the, the piano is just the, that's the, a, what a sound the, the problem is she doesn't know when to stop and I think there's Ryan Adams syndrome happening here as well this idea that every idea that comes into your head in studio has to be released mm. and recorded and it's not the case she needed a very good editor she needed to actually take a look at what she's done and go actually there's rather than an hour and a half of music why don't I make 40 minutes mm. of music yeah, because, you know, you could argue that, yeah, we do get something else out of that song when when the production is added in and that big heavy beat, mm. beat and all the rest of it. But if she just put that at the back of her head and went back and did it on the piano, would we not get just a better version of the song on the piano? Well, I think it's it's having the confidence to know which one is better and standing yeah, and behind it. it. I yeah. mean, you, you mentioned self-indulgence there. I, th- I think there is certainly an aspect of that, but I think there's also a lack of self-confidence. You can really hide in the weeds here and and say, mm, here's my mm. version, but here's another version just in case you don't like that one. Yeah, Sta- good point. Stand behind your songs, you know. Give us give us 10 good songs. We know she's capable of it. You know? Yeah, because... Even on the first album, which is the original, she gives us 14 songs. Mm. Uh, and, and I think there might be a couple of songs on the second one that... Uh, that were left uh, off. Yeah. yeah. That, 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 I, that, that, funnily enough, I, pr- I must say, generally speaking, I preferred the unlocked version, which yeah. is the kind of, there's more happening on it and there are guest appear- guests there, like Lil Wayne yeah. um, on Nat King, King Cole, one of the better songs for me. I wrote here, Stirring Electronica Meets Classical Track. Um and uh, but but unfortunately, um, and it's not just because it's a very long album, but there are v- loads of skippable tracks here. Yeah, there's loads that just doesn't get out of first or second gear, and you kind of feel, I don't think I'll listen to this again. Yeah, because the the, the the tempo and the the kind of texture that we heard, that's what you get across the yeah. twenty something tracks, twenty eight or twenty nine tracks. Of you the, never of the get a album. chance to lean into it. Yeah. There's no. There's no through line. There's no sense of you like when when you listen when you listen to Alicia Keys like first record even which was outstanding. That had the feeling of sinking into a bath, you know, and like listening to that amazing yeah. voice and piano. But here it's just it's so all over the place. I don't know what to do with it. Okay, I don't think either of you enjoyed it. Uh, I was listening to the morning. I thought I'd be generous. Maybe I should be listening to this at night. Maybe it's not a morning mm-hmm. time album. But you know, when I was still listening to it near noon, I thought, ah, oh, come here. <laughs> <laughs> right, it starts from you. I've and, listened uh, to it morning. Afternoon and evening, and I didn't like it any time. So it's, it's gonna it's gonna be a two for me because I do think that her you right. can't deny her voice. Okay. Her and uh, what are you saying, John? Well, two for the originals album, three for Unlock. Giving mathematicians will know a great score of two point five. <laughs> 2.5 and 2. A uh, resounding 2.5. Yeah, so, so that's the original <laughs> score and then the um, unlocked score from John. Let us move on to Tom Morello, a new album called The Atlas Underground Flood. It's only a couple of months since we had The Atlas Underground Fire, if I'm thinking correctly. Rage Against the Machine, man, he, it, when they stormed into music 30 years ago, the band's guitarist, Tom Morello, very much the driving force. Intervening years have seen him collaborate with many of music's great in public, including Public Enemy's Chuck D. Now, on the latest album, The Atlas Underground Flood, he's roped in talents such as Han Solo, Jim Jones and Rodrigo e Gabriello. Who's involved in this first track that I'm going to play? Oh, on this very first track, Nathaniel Ratliff, Jim Jones is in here and Chipotle Joe. Trying to make America great again. I think they're trying to make America hate again. Facts. I do America at my latest best. We're dealing with political trickery. I know a clown when I see one, ain't no tricking me. I used to sit by the fair watching hard enough. And all these pains on my back like they're whipping me. Tell the NRA I'm gonna vote with the fifth for me. Look at that. Young boys be chilling like nasty. What a bottle of slaves that you had killed. 
I know I'm getting deep, but the truth hurts. At this point, we'll police like shoot first. I know I'm getting deep, but the truth hurts. At this point, we'll police like shoot first. That's uh, Tom Morello uh, uh, with a track called Hard Times featuring Nathaniel Ratliff, Jim Jones, and Chipotle Joe. And I'm wondering, is it actually the three of them? Is Tom Morello or is he on the guitar there somewhere? He's playing in the a lot of, of guitar yeah. on this. And in fairness, he is revered in guitar circles. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'll be honest, he's not somebody that typically comes across my radar. I'm not somebody who avidly listened to Rage Against the Machine or Audio Slave back in the day. And when Atlas Underground Fire, which was the precursor to this album, emerged two months ago, I was completely oblivious to it. Um, I've listened to a bit of it and it's it's grand. Um, I kind of like this in a way, in that it's very scattergun. It's mm. it's a, there's a huge number of guests here, so it's extremely eclectic and all over the shop. But I think there's some good stuff in it. Yeah. I quite like that track. Oh yeah, I mean, and some of the the, the noisier tracks, if I put it that way, Andrea. You know, it's hard. You'd be hard put not, not to, for the blood not to start moving. Yeah, I think. Yes, but noise. What I'm hearing um, there. I mean, so I I was a Rage Against the Machine fan when I was you know a teenager when when they were kind of knocking about and. I I think with with Tom Morello, what he's very good at doing is tricking you into thinking that he's doing what he used to do. So he'll he'll do this big heavy riff in the middle of this song, mm. but you kind of have to ask yourself like, but is the song good? And most of the time, it's not very good structurally, melodically, and, and any of the other things that we usually kind of associate with something being catchy. But he just comes in with all this gusto and just. <laughs> bashes down the yeah. door and starts doing these relatively pedestrian and unimaginative guitar riffs like all over these these like um, these collaborations with people who I, I don't know what email thread they were all mm. on it, this is a, such a bizarre project and I listened to the previous one as well and that was even more bizarre uh, but it, essentially, um, the, the the sonic world of the album is very much like the track we just heard. I mean, there's a track by Idols featuring Idols. I said by Idols featuring Idols. Yeah, it's like the, an Idols the, track. The Bachelor, um, yeah. I, I, which I quite enjoyed. But then I like Idols. Yeah. Um, I, I think Morello's guitar guitar is the kind of common thread mm. here. Um, there are some very, I, I, I would agree with Andrea in that there are some very bad tracks on it. I mean, there's a there's a track called Raising Hell with Ben Harper. Yeah, which comes after a track called Ride It Down, which is, you know, that kind of yeah. run, uh, real industrial sound. And then this little acoustic piece out of nowhere. It, yeah, and it just, it's, it's, it's unpleasant, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, let's. Uh, I won't play the, uh, the the one that you call unpleasant. I but do. No, I won't. <laughs> um, well, after parallels, which features Jim J- Jones again, or Jim James again, really again punky sound. You finish that punky sound, and then this is the final track on the album. This is what greets you. That is Rodrigo Gabriela. That is who you're hearing in, uh, who are featuring on the Tom Morello album. That's a track called Warrior Spirit. But like, 
where does it is is there a, where does it fit in with what's happening elsewhere on the album? A bit like the track that John mentioned as being unpleasant, the Ben Harper track. Unpleasant was it even or was it worse than that? You said I think. Yeah. Where does all well, it was it, inoffensive as well, yeah. that, which is well, one of the worst things you can say about anything in yeah. music, you know. But, but does the album come together in any kind of a way? Tom Morell is a big name, Andrea. No, it doesn't. No, it, it sounds like what that song sounds like, which is a fever dream from the past. You know, it, it, there's absolutely no cohesion there. It's Rodrigo and Gabriela, for example, doing the same thing as they've been doing. But they for were years doing and it years with, years. Well, well, certainly to my memory, more gusto than we hear on that Absolutely. track. Absolutely, that that is they. That's them phoning it in, and it's him phoning it in as well. You know, you, you you get this bit in the middle where you think it's this big, huge like guitar solo. He's just playing triplets. He can do that in his sleep. You know, yeah. it's not. It's trickery, and a, a, across both of these records, it's just all of this like overblown production making you think that these songs are making Rage Against the Machine level statements it feels ridiculous to even compare the two like no this is not good Stars a kind to a kind to I know I'd be more generous than that I mean there's a track there Manchester Orchestra the slow burning lost cause quite like it I, I think it's worthy of three stars worthy for of all three. The, for all the mess that's going on here <laughs> oh, right okay uh, that's Tom Morello and the Atlas Underground Flood let us move on then to our final album Aeon Station Band rising from the ashes of the Wrens New Jersey band that were the darlings of the critics in the early part of this century and from those ashes co-frontman Kevin Whelan put together Aeon Station today they bring us Observatory let's listen to a track from Observatory here's uh, Everything at Once It's never quite the same The future lies beyond That's everything at once from Aeon Station's new album Observatory and roll the credits on some American TV series because that's what that's going to be before too long it'll be the same tune won't it for some series I'm an absolute sucker for that sound though I mean I think that, that that's such a it's such a lovely melody it reminds me of the shins it reminds me of some past I wasn't even involved in it's it, but it is it is totally that kind of you know nostalgia based 1990s very 90s American indie yeah, isn't it you know yeah. Yeah. but I think that you know I, I've I've kind of I've heard that being levelled at this band and, and other kind of modern bands who are making this kind of music as as an insult but I'm like if that oh no. if that style yeah. of music was good then why not we're, we're copying a lot of music that was bad Tom Morello you know why not <laughs> Why not bring and, back and, and I suppose also some of the back in stuff. the days of the Wrens, they were doing this stuff were, in the yeah. actual nineties. Although the the great album from them was two thousand and three, The Meadowlands. It's a very very good album. It was one that I, I started reviewing music around then and kind of missed it that year. Mm. I remember somebody saying, "How could you miss the Meadowlands?" <laughs> and I kind of listened to it, and it's like it is a very special album. This. This is a lovely album. There's a lot of really good things I on thought it. you were going to say something totally different oh, and then you went, this is a my, lovely my album. My facial expression obviously <laughs> yeah. let me down. No, I think it's, I think it's, there's some very fine moments in this. There's a song called Fade. Um, pavement meets the shins uh, in terms of yes, what's happening there. Yeah, what a, what a lovely concoction. <laughs> All right. I have a listen to it and try to think again.
Well, I'm looking across the desk here and the two heads are bobbing up and down <laughs> with absolute delight. I'm looking out to the production area and there's a big head nodding from oh, side well, to that's side. Typ- in, that's typical. In disbelief. <laughs> has to be said. Um, you're, you're, you're totally enamoured of this. Oh, totally. Absolutely. I mean, I listened to this this morning and then I went and listened to two Shins records and then I went and listened to this again and I was like, that's a day well spent now, to be honest right. with you. Yeah, no, I, th- I think this is, this is really wonderful. It's a... It's a kind of a gentle, lulling yeah. album. The the lyrics are really good. I mean, this is an album that is was has like a fraught, you know, yeah. story behind mm. it. The band kind of they they split, and it's been I think like thirteen years since they tried to start recording the yeah. final Wren's album. And um, Charles Bissell, who was uh, the other kind of primary songwriter in 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 that band, just wouldn't let it happen right. kept kept pulling it out of the, the studio wouldn't let it happen so Kevin Whelan just said look I've written five songs for that they're mine now and I'm going to go and do my and own that's thing what, and, that's what and he's here done it is here. Yeah. Um, so it worked for you stars from you Andrea Oh, I am four. A happy four. A happy four. John, I, you have a glum look on your face, but I think <laughs> you're much that's happier. Just, that's just that, me. You're that's smiling just, inside. That's just my disposition. Um, I'm thinking of how wonderful it would be to see them in Vicar Street, in a packed Vicar Street, playing that song. Yeah. Four stars, a very strong four well, stars. Well, let us hope we can have packed venues at some point in the coming months and years. Uh, uh, Aeon Station Observatory, clearly the winner of tonight's <laughs> album prize. I listened to it after Alicia Keys and Tom Morellis so perhaps it deserves another go have it with your mm. Indian yeah, tonight Sean yeah. Yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, Observatory uh, Tom Morello The Atlas Under Flood and Keys from Alicia Keys the three albums that Andrea Cleary and John Meyer were speaking to us about this evening that is our lot for tonight and indeed for this week Leah, Mur- Leah, Leah Murphy and Paula Shields research Janice Murphy and Michelle Gibson were the broadcast coordinators Harry Brookless was on sound this evening tonight's programme was produced by Ola McGowan talk to you on Monday 7 o'clock once again here on RT Radio